So what's going on? It took us three and a half, four years to get here finally. Yeah, from two miles down the street. <laughs> um, for those people that have never heard of you before, which is probably a lot of my audience, they're about to, not just from this, but from everything that you're doing and growing with your business. So why don't you give people a quick intro because there'd be no way I could cover everything that you do in nearly the amount of time that we have. Sure. Well, my name is Lisa Woodruff. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I am the founder of Organize 365. Organize 365 is an education and multimedia company that helps people learn the skill of organization at home. So we've gone through the business side of your program, but I've also seen you impact thousands of people's lives through organization. And I'm somebody where I've got that, uh, you might call it ADHD, even though it's not diagnosed, but I like to spread out. Everything has a home, everything has a place. And I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs have that mentality anyway of like, I've got to have my hands in all these different pies, but then we overload ourselves so far cognitively that oftentimes it all just falls right off the rails. Yes. So, so interesting because I've been in business for 10 years and I have a degree in education. So I went to college to be an educator and then I was a stay-at-home mom and my kids ended up with IEPs, which are individualized education plans from having learning disabilities and ADHD. So I've learned a lot about ADHD. I went to in, into in-home organizing and then now I help people get organized in their home. And what I've learned is that our executive function which is what ADHD is comprised of, of the eight things that your prefrontal cortex does, they're mostly organization related. They're related to organizing as one, planning, being able to see how far you've come and how far you have to go, um, impulse control. Those are all ADHD characteristics and parts of your executive function. The more organized you are, the higher level you're able to use your executive function. And our our products, the Sunday Basket Workbox, actually externalize executive function. And that's why they're so great for creatives and entrepreneurs and business owners, because every single company you see today was started by an entrepreneur. There, there is no company that was not started by an entrepreneur. And an entrepreneur is going to have a lot of high executive function and being able to take things from two different industries and make something new in a company and then create a company around that. You can't do that if you're a linear thinker. Very true. So where do we where do we even begin to start with this? You were talking about that there's eight different modalities of organization. Let's let's break those down and get into those. What are those? How do they function? Yeah. So eight executive functions, which is where ADHD, um, where the ADHD diagnosis comes from. A lot of those are based on how you organize information and how you attack information. So when I think of your audience, who are mostly business owners and entrepreneurs, the, the way I finally realized this was when I was in direct sales, stay-at-home mom, I was in direct sales, trying to earn some extra money, but I'm business-oriented at heart. Like I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. So I was never a hobbyist. I was always going to succeed and make money. <laughs> and I was able to do that, but the people that I signed up in the direct sales company were not. And it was because they weren't, as organized in business as I was, they might've even been more passionate about what we were selling, but they couldn't distinguish between the different kinds of work they were doing in their business. So if you think of any like Tupperware, multi-level vitamin company, there are four kinds of work that you do. There's your lead generation, there's selling the product, then there's building the team, and then there's taking care of the administration and the finances of the business. And most people are either good at getting leads into the company, but they can't close the sale, or they're good at closing the sale, but they can't find enough leads to close the sale. And I call those pink and purple work. And once I got my downline to be able to do both of those equally well, then we added on the skill of growing a team and recruiting, and then finally taking care of their finances and their administrative repetitive tasks. But those are four different ways of thinking, four different ways of working, and four different balls to juggle, which is a lot to juggle. And that's just in a regular basic business, any business. Now, if you're the business owner, you're juggling all of that and more. 
easily. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, kind of like the duck on water. You don't see how fast the feet are moving underneath. Yeah. But um, we've talked before, and this is getting a little bit off tangent already, about what's really the definition of being organized? Because when we start to look at this, like what I consider organized and what you consider organized and what Billy, who's listening, considers organized might be two different things. He might think if I've got all my papers in my truck that are in order from my sales calls I got to make today organized, I'm set. For me, I'm looking at it. Does everybody on my team have what they need in order to succeed? So everything else moves, then I consider myself organized and projects are moving forward. So where do we start to differentiate that? Because mentally our brain can't tell the difference. So how do we start to look at this from more of a methodical point of view? Yes. So as you were talking, you actually defined two different words. So organization as defined by the people we've been doing research lately and doing a lot of polls of Americans. And we've also separated our research between men and women and both men and women define organization in the same way. And they defined it as being able to find things. If you can find it, it's organized. But when you are talking about it in relation to your company and being able to hand off work or organizing work, that's more from a productivity standpoint. And productivity and organization are two different things. Actually, an organization, Organize 365, we have defined organization as a three-fold process. The first step is decluttering. So whenever you get a spring fling or, you know, 50 bags are going out in the 50 days of Lent or any of those <laughs> kind of things, those are all decluttering organized. Anybody can declutter. It feels good to get rid of things. You, you feel lighter and then you feel like you're ready to move into productivity. And that's the mistake. There is a middle step between decluttering and being a more productive person. And that is the actual skill of organizing and that is finding a place for everything, knowing where to find things. So once you can no longer find things you are looking for, or you miss things because you didn't have a good way of retrieving that information, then you're no longer organized. But what that looks like when you're in somebody's house is the difference between a minimalist and someone that has a more eclectic decorating style. You can be organized and be a minimalist. You could be organized and have an eclectic decorating style. That's how you want to see your organization. That's your personality. It's not actually the organization itself. So now I've got a great excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep unpacking that a little bit because I feel like it's great to talk about, but for a lot of people, they still think, well, I'm just going to throw stuff out until I find where I'm happy. And then it's just mm -hmm. going to pile back up again in four or five, six months or even a few years. And then I'm going to be back into that cycle. Mm -hmm. And I find myself even with that too, looking at, how much we've even been able to do with F after implementing your program in a month and a half, I'm starting to see the system work and I know it's going to compound, but it's interesting to see that kind of flip into a household and starting to see like, Oh man, I'm so far behind. And it's, it constantly feels like that. I'm just going to add to that problem more than I ever actually get ahead of it. And it, I have to think back like, no, it's a process. It's got to work. It's going to take time and then it'll get there. But even with the month and a half that I've noticed us implementing this here, there's more time in my calendar. My calendar itself is even more organized based off of a color modality. And it brought me back to my neuroscience days of like, well, no kidding. We have to organize based off of color. We have to organize based off of theme more than just, hey, this was here, that goes there, and that's there, because eventually that's going to break. Yeah, and it's group when you're organizing by color, you're grouping things in your mind versus just a long, never-ending to-do list. And as you're talking about um, how you feel getting organized and that cycle of decluttering over and over and over again, that's totally normal. It's, it's totally normal. There are three times during the year you're always going to want to declutter. And those are around spring break or the beginning of summer. Mm -hmm. Definitely, as you're headed into fall, that Labor Day weekend, everybody wants a good garage clean out Labor Day weekend in the United States. And then the week between Christmas and New Year's, whether or not you celebrate Christmas doesn't matter. That last week of the year, you want to declutter going into a new year. Those are totally natural times when you want to declutter. And it is, it is a changing from one season to the next. As you hit a milestone birthday, you're going to want to declutter. When you move, you want to declutter. When you have a baby, when that child goes to school, um, all these different life experiences are going to make you want to declutter as you are getting ready for the next thing. So the decluttering is actually also a physical moving from one season to the next or from one priority to the next. So it's almost acting as like a growth trigger. Yes. Or like a, um, 
Well, would you really consider a trigger? Is it more of like a, uh, just a natural response to the fact that it's already happening? It's like the kinesthetic response to the intellectual experience you're having. I think that's why, um, you know, when COVID happened, a lot of people just focused on their house because they, that's what they're in control of. Mm -hmm. A lot of decluttering and organizing is taking control of something that is new and unknown or an experience that you're trying to process through. And you literally do that physically by sweating out and dragging (laughs) things out of your house that you no longer need. (laughs) We went through that and we pulled out like 60 garbage bags worth Mm -hmm. of stuff. And as for us, it hit when we moved into our house and everybody dumped all their stuff into our house and said, great, you'll figure out what you need and you'll throw out the rest. Yep. And then it just sat there for two and a half years as we were like, wow, nothing in here is really us. It's mm-hmm. everything that everybody wanted us to have versus what we wanted to be here. Yeah. And as much as also you're going to experience this when your parents pass away or when you help a loved one who is sick, you know, minimalize so that there is less for them to take care of while they are convalescing and getting better. Um, Those are experiences. While it's hard to do when you're cleaning out your family home, there is also a catharsis that happens through the physical act of doing it. Just living through those memories again. Mm -hmm. Because I think part of what we're so exhausted with right now with COVID and everything that's happening in the world is because it's all mental. Like there's no physical release. And if you're going from working at home instead of just even that drive, that commute back to the office, that really gives your brain a time to think and process and listen to music or whatever and a transition from one to the other. If you're working at home and living at home and you don't have that commute and you're working, you know, 60, 80 hour weeks because you're trying to grow this business. So you're not working out. You don't even have time to walk the dog around the block. You're not getting any kind of a physical release. I noticed that when we work from home, and it's one of the reasons why when everybody started to go, let's work from home, we pivoted and opened up our studio. And I know you guys grew tremendously. We did that too. During that time, because I noticed it, we grew the business initially from work at home. Mm-hmm. And then once we started to build a team, it was under the guise of we need better culture in the business, but also building a culture means you have to be around somebody a right. lot. Even if it's not, you know, doors might be closed, we might be working independently on things. Having that communal space where you can build that environment was missing and it was lacking and you're 100% right. I noticed my anxiety and depression levels were all over the place working from home because I did even like Megan would come home from her job and say, hey, like, you know, it's it's us time. It's like, but I, I can't turn that off. I would notice myself sitting on the couch because I was in that same environment of I have to work. I'm in work mode. So then we moved everything from the living room into a spare bedroom, Mm -hmm. set that up as an office space. But then when I would go in there to play video games or try to relax, the mental kickback is all my triggers for work were constantly around me. Yeah. The first nine years of Organized 365, I did it from home. And then halfway through COVID, halfway of the two years through COVID, we had already moved into a warehouse. I had an office and my husband got sent home from work again. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I have an office. So I was like, I don't have to let the dog out. You're going to be home. I'm going to go work at the office. And now I haven't gone back. And I used to work all the time, evenings, weekends. And now if I'm going to work evenings, weekends, I actually drive into the office because it's not very far. And I had to log on from home. <laughs> I fired up the computer and the thing's like, we need to update. Like nothing worked <laughs> anymore. I was like, yes, I don't work at home anymore. It was a huge transition and so great. So with all your research that you do, have you noticed any type of generational difference of people that are like, yes, I want to work from home versus uh, those that have maybe experienced both, what they're wanting to lean more towards and how they're organizing that lifestyle change? Yeah, I have not done any research on this myself personally. I've read a lot of research and I'm very inquisitive. So I ask a lot of people and I'm always around different generations of people. And I think what I'm observing is there are some people like me who were stay-at-home moms or they have worked from home and they really like being in the office. Like there are some people in our office where we like to work in the office and we even like coming in on the weekends. There are also people who... um, We have a flexible work arrangement at Organize 365 where you can run out and get coffee. You can go to the dentist. Like, it doesn't matter. As long as your work is done, you generally work a 40-hour week. But um, you can work an afternoon at home if you want flex time. Uh, Everybody picks a a couple of hours that they work from home, especially if they have kids. Like, my kids really want me to get them off the bus one day a week. So this day is a special day, and I always leave work early, and I get them off the bus, and then I work an hour from home. So we have those kinds of arrangements. And then there are a few people who really want to have a couple days from home and a couple days in the office. And we do our meetings on 
Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So they work in the office those days and then home Monday, Thursday. Interesting. So we've gone, we're very similar to that as far as um, we call it hybrid, like a hybrid mm-hmm. work environment. And it's been, it's been interesting. It's been a pivot for a lot of people and it's, it's enabled us to think about our technology deck in a different way on how we're, how we're moving and growing too. Yeah. And we have a physical warehouse and we ship out products, so we can't be closed. Like no. we have yeah. to have people there, <laughs> but in the same vein, we're 24 seven cause we're a website and a podcast and sure. most people organize on the weekend. So you have your true nine to five Monday through Friday employees that don't want to work evenings and weekends. And then you have your warehouse workers that if they get COVID, they can't work from home. Like, so we, we have everything and we have part-time and full-time. We have um, contractors and W2 employees, like being a business owner today, it's not like you pick the path of how you're going to grow your company. It's going to be yes. And you have all these people, full-time, part-time employees, non-employees have to be in the office, not in the office, like all of it. So how do you juggle the productivity with needing to balance everything else that's happening around that? Um, Or how do we even, let's take that being before that, how do you start to measure productivity against that then? So, you know, there's this also interesting conversation going on that I don't really understand where it's like, if you get your work done, you get your work done. If you get it done in 20 hours, you're done in 20 hours. You should get your full-time pay. Like that, my brain cannot compute. So I don't have like a certain productivity metric that I'm trying to get my team to achieve and then they can be done. If they can do that in 25 hours, they're done in 25 hours. If it takes them 55, it takes them 55. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, we were launching something today and the tech stack didn't work. And so we had, you know, four different people not do anything except fix this all day long. So then you would say that because the tech stack broke, those people have to work on Saturday now because they didn't hit their productivity goals. I guess I look at it as a teacher. And I've really built my whole entire company as a teacher. So it was just me and that was me and my assistant. I've grown it from there. And as each employee has unique skills, giftings, talents, and desires, ambitions, and needs, I try to meet those as much as possible. And then there are things that we have throughout, like Google Docs is what we use. And we like we all use the same tech stack and we know which people are more rigid with their times off or will be on call evenings and weekends if you need them. A lot of it's season of life. Yep. You know, like some people have kids at home and their time at home is sacred and they don't want to be contacted. And other people have kids <laughs> at home and they're like, oh, please call me. <laughs> like, I'm totally available. What do you I need? need the when do you need it? And we have a lot of women that are in their late 40s and 50s, which is interesting just because, you know, that's my age that we're stay-at-home moms and we all are now super excited to be full-time employees and we are just on fire for learning and growing whereas most women in or, or people in their late 40s and 50s are like if they've been in careers their whole lives they're like looking for when are they going to retire we're like just getting started like our team is a bunch of 22 year old 50 year olds <laughs> like just getting started in our careers i'm glad you brought that up because i've been really fascinated by that demographic inside of the workplace I think they're some of the highest emotionally intelligent people I've met. 50-ish women? 50-ish women that were initially stay-at-home moms before coming back into the workforce. Their level of EQ is through the charts. Their ability to multitask, to prioritize, to deliver the product, to make sure it's done, to not drop the ball is off the charts. Why? Is that just from juggling kids for so many years? Because that's what home is like. People just (laughs) do not realize, like, you are, take any corporation, like, the thing in a corporation is if if the deadline doesn't get hit, you could throw more dollars at it. You can get more resources. You can get more people. You can blame the stock market. You can blame whatever. At home, if the kid is throwing up and you have to get mom to the doctor's appointment and the bills are due, like you have no choice. You just get it done. And you have no time off and you have no vacation days and you work 24-7 and you love it because you love your family and you just figure out a way to get it done. Do you see that being generationally true or is that what we just experienced over the last 40, 50 years to where, um, the, to where that became the social and standardized norm of what this was supposed to be? Because we transitioned, right? Women came into the workforce because society needed them to. So that shifted the whole that's dynamic. That's not true. That's not true. So I read this fascinating book this summer because I read a bazillion trillion books and someone in my audience told me to read it. It's called The Secret secret something of home economics, the secret history of home economics. And it's about home economics in college. And basically back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, women had people who did their laundry for them and childcare and they were working. Hmm. Right. Right. So let me just tell you how powerful media is. 
when the war happened and men went out to the war, supposedly women went into the workforce. No, women were already in the workforce. When men came back at the end of World War II, there were so many men that the women had to leave the workforce for the men to get the jobs. And there was so much prosperity in the United States that then the big companies that sell soap had soap operas and TV stations, and they wanted to sell their soap and their machines and all these things that they I had. I didn't know that's where that came from. So they create, oh, that's where soap operas <laughs> came from, for sure, for sure. But also this idea of a stay-at-home mom. There was no stay-at-home mom before the early 1940s. And it became a really big deal for women to be able to come home and stay home and take care of children and take care of the house and make sure everything was done so they could use these electronics and they could use all these soap products. So home economics used to be a degree that you got in college that was about studying the economy of the home and what happened in a home and how to make a home function kind of like a business. And then it became a fluff degree after that. So it's a lost art. Yes. So this idea of being a stay-at-home mom and that that is not work, but it's, you know, like this puff piece for women to do, that was totally created by media. <laughs> I'm never, as much as I'm surprised, I'm also not at the same time, <laughs> because once you understand, like we're even seeing it now, like not trying mm -hmm. to get political, but like COVID happened. And then the next thing the media blares, once it's time to hold somebody accountable, they throw everything else at the wall to mm -hmm. try to distract the story again. Well, they used to say, you know, if, if it's not about the money, it's about the money. Now I would say if it's not about the eyeballs, it's about the eyeballs. Yeah. I mean, like, are you really even looking at things that are true? So I think that because this idea of a stay-at-home mom, which, which primarily is a white thing, you know, like I was talking to some of my friends that are African-American. They're like, we don't, there's no such thing as a stay-at-home mom. Like we all work. We've always mm -hmm. worked. We all work. I was like, oh, like, you know, you just kind of see that you don't have the same lens that everyone else does. It's totally what's been fed to us in the media, in sitcoms, in TV shows. That's where we get that idea from. If it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm going to have to think on that one more. Well, and I think we got to this from stay-at-home moms. So what I find so interesting is when it's a pretty arduous process to get hired at Organize 365. You go through like four different interviews and a project. And this you have to take the Colby <laughs> test. Like this, it's this whole thing. And even though it's hard to hire people, we still put you through the whole the whole thing. But I never ask you where you went to college. Like I never ask you. I went to college, but I just don't even... I don't even think about it. So uh, one of the people that we had hired, primarily stay-at-home moms, who totally undervalue their experience, but also anything that they did before they had kids, we're out to dinner and we're talking and we're talking about something. And she said, oh yeah, well in Japan I had blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, when were you in Japan? Oh, when I was there for my international business degree. I was like, you have an international <laughs> business degree? She was like, oh yeah, didn't I tell you that? Like, and, and in our audience, or in our company, every week it's something like, oh, didn't I tell you that I did this? Because we've lived 50 years. So we've lived 30 years past college. All that life experience, all that traveling, all the places we've been, the people we've seen, the stages of our kids' lives. If we didn't have kids, the jobs that we've had, like all that cumulative experience comes together in this group of ladies that are in their 40s and 50s. That's what makes it so cool. It truly is the American, the American pride and the American journey all wrapped into one. Mm -hmm. You should be proud. That's a really cool accomplishment to be able to say that you built that and it's built on the people that helped raise us from the beginning. Oh, that's good. Alex, we should put that in our marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. What's really cool is the guys that work in the warehouse are the sons of the women who work in the company. That's great. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. I want to get back to this idea of the different types of housework and organization because- mm -hmm. You asked me this a while ago of what I thought about housework. And my instant response was mowing the grass and making sure that uh, dishes are put away. Mm -hmm. And you were like, well, that's just like two facets of yes. the entire spectrum of getting organized and thinking about this as a skill and even of a broader scope. I want to dig into the different modalities and lenses that we can look at this through, because I think it's going to open up people's eyes to organizing isn't just putting papers in a specific order and then shoving them in a file cabinet. Exactly. So all you know about organization is what has been fed to you in the media, which is from companies that want to sell you things on how to organize. Like no one's ever taught you the skill of organizing. If you did not know how to organize your childhood bedroom, how do you learn the, the skill of organizing? 
You, you don't like nobody teaches I you. I did. I definitely did not organize that better. And that thing was a mess every day. And so, and so it is a skill. It's a learnable yep. skill. I'm a teacher. I want to teach the skill of organizing. And so when I look at teaching the skill of organizing, I wanted to have the discussion about where is the breakdown? Like where, when my kids were having difficulty learning, I sent them to have a test done and in the test, it took them from first through fourth grade and it found every single skill that they didn't learn. So I could go back and I could shore up all those those skills so that their education could be more solid mm-hmm. going into fifth grade. So that's what I wanted to find in organizing. Where are we if 86% of Americans believe from our research that organization is a learnable skill? Where do you learn it? How do you learn it? What is it? And what I found out was we don't know. So in our research, in our first research, we were trying to define housework. And I'll be honest with you, Alex. I was doing the research to prove that women were doing it and men were not doing all the work at all. (laughs) Just wanted to prove it so I could go on podcasts and say it, whatever. Not what I found. It's not what I found. What I found was the age group and demographic most interested in learning the skill of organizing. Do you know? Did I tell you? No, but let me take a let me take a stab at it. I would probably say first time parents or first time moms. Millennial men. Are they, Millennial are they men. chasing this idea of perfection or productivity? I don't know. They're the most interested in learning the skill of organizing. They want to know about organizing the most. And when we went to do the research, because we did IRB academic-based research, you had to define every word. So we were arguing over the definition of all these words, and we got all done. We were ready to deploy the survey. And I said, what's the definition of housework? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you defined all these other words. It's called the state of housework in the American home. Like, what's your definition of housework? So I went to Google. Do you know how Google defines housework? Work that's done at home. Your fourth grade teacher would not let you use that (laughs) definition. You can't use the word inside the definition. So I thought about it and I thought, okay, well, what do I know to be true as a stay-at-home mom and someone who's helped thousands of people organize their home? There are four kinds of work. Two are essential and two are completely optional. So the two that are essential come to mind, but I have different names for them than you would normally use. The first one is cleaning. You call it cleaning. Cleaning is something you have to do at home. If your house is not clean enough, the government will come and take your children away and will condemn your house. And I have organized for people whose children were going to be taken away from them. It is a real thing. You have to have a certain level of cleanliness. I define cleaning as anything that you can hire a company to come do. So Molly Maids or whoever the franchise is in your area will come and clean your house. Whatever they would do, that is what I define as cleaning. The second essential thing is also a government definition. After I did my research, all the nurses were like, ADLs, but I didn't know what that was. So I defined it as tasks of daily living. Tasks of daily living are anything related to you as a human. Wherever you go, on vacation, from the time you're born until the time you die, these things have to be done for you every day and every week. It doesn't matter where you live. So that would be your laundry, your food, your showering, your ability to take care of money and pay your bills. And if you can't do those things, then Social Security will define that you have a disability and they will give you the help that you need in order to have those needs met during your lifetime. So those two are essential and those are works that are done inside of the house. The two that are optional, you mentioned one, which is the lawn. That's anything maintenance related to your house. If you rent, you don't have to do maintenance. But if you own your home, you have to do maintenance. It's a current investment of money for a future return on in an increase in that money. And then the fourth one that's optional is organization. Organization is a current investment of time that yields future exponential return on time. And then we did our study on organization and I realized what is organization? We defined that. So out of those, after you've had time to think about it, why do you think it is millennial men that are so interested and fascinated by this topic now? So I have not you know, specifically done a focus group. So this is just what I'm extrapolating. I think it is, um, you know, as I'm presenting this housework research to corporate groups of people, men and women, um, I likened it to this as a female business owner in Cincinnati, I have yet to reach out to a male business owner or anyone in corporate and ask them to open a door that they have not only opened that door, but said, Hey, you're going to need these other doors too. So let me tell you about them and let me open these doors and walk you through. So you know what to do as a female business owner. Can you give an example of that? 
in business? Yeah. Oh yeah. So like I need to have a CFO. Oh, actually you don't need a CFO. You actually need this marketing guy and here's your sales Got guy. It. And here's a, here's a bank that is friendly in our area mm-hmm. to female business owners, that kind of a thing. And so why I think that the numbers of millennial men are so high is because they want to have an active role and participation in the home and the work that is going on in the home, but they can't figure out what it is. Because we as women have not opened the door to our home and said, hi, this is the work we're doing. It's actually four kinds of work. There's organization, there's maintenance, there's tasks of daily living, which are of the person. And then there is the cleaning, which is of the house. Which one would you like me to share with you first? And I'll show you how we do that in our home. We just say, there's so much around here. How do you not know what to do? How can you not see everything that I see? Which is what we as women in the business place have been saying to business owners for a long time. How can you not see us? How can you not help us? So, so the business community over the last couple of decades has, has had to really take a look at itself and figure out where is there inequity and non-inclusion? How can we make a pathway for more equity at the C-level, in the board levels, for uh, female business owners to get the startup funding that everyone else does? And it's taken a lot of time, a lot of questioning, a lot of people who are willing to go out there and be one of the first people in the boardroom and the first person at the C-level suite and all of those things. And so the difference at home is no one's making you open the door. No one's making you learn about it. But I think millennial men are very inquisitive and very desiring to be equal partners at home and in work. And I think that's why. It's an interesting dynamic shift. So I don't don't remember that out of uh, the male figures I had growing up. It was once I got home, it was either uh, just leave me alone and what, let me do my thing, or I'm going to go work out in the yard. Like my, like my grandfather, for example, who's now 75. He would get home from work after uh, working out of college and he would instantly go and tend to a field. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. And it was expected that my grandmother would run the rest of the ship. And then coming from a more single parent household with my mom, I watched her kind of do both. And that opened up a different lens. Yeah. Yeah. No rest. No, none. And uh, it's what makes her my hero too. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that there is, um, whenever you just judge based on your own perception or how you think it should be and why people can't just flip a switch and move. I think that if we can have an open dialogue, if we can really truly understand how we got to where we are, especially for my age of women who did end up rearing children and now we're in our 50s and the kids have grown up, what I find happens is that this tasks of daily living, and that's why I separated out from cleaning, because you can hire somebody to clean your house, but somebody still has to prepare the meals, shop for the meals, do the laundry, all that. That role inside of the household usually tends to be put on one adult when you start cohabitating Mm -hmm. for convenience and productivity reasons, but it never gets uncoupled as you get older. So this is why I think you get a lot of middle-aged women who get very frustrated that they're still, you know, doing a lot of this housework related stuff. They're still not getting their Saturdays and Sundays to do whatever they want, even though they have raised the kids and the kids have gone because now they have a really big kid living at home. And, and then you get into that dynamic of looking at your spouse as a child because you're doing for your spouse what you did for your children that are now doing it for themselves. And that can really play negatively in a relationship. Yeah, I can see that. With the idea of tasks of daily living, mm-hmm. what do you think about the idea of like constantly swapping? Or should, right. it, or should it be like, hey, like I, I love doing dishes, so that's all I'm going to do. Either or. I think either conversation is fine. So about six years ago, I said to my husband, I don't cook anymore. I was never a fabulous cook, but I did cook. And I said, look, I'm driving 25 hours a week. I'm trying to start this business. I'm also doing professional organizing. I'm in the car all the time. I buy fast food constantly. I'm just going to call a spade a spade. I don't cook. I'm just going to buy fast food. So if you want anything from the grocery store other than milk and coffee, you're going to need to buy it. (laughs) And if you don't want to have fast food and take out every night, which is what I've already been doing for the last year, you're going to need to make the change. And he did. And he does the grocery shopping. He makes uh, two meals a week and he, he does grumble about it, but I don't, I haven't been in a grocery store in years. I make Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, like I make all the big meals mm-hmm. and I make everything in there. And I look at my husband and say, I don't know how to cook. He goes, you do do, <laughs> but I don't, I won't do it, but I do the laundry. I do the dishes. I don't mind it. And dishes at our house get done twice a week. They just pile up until I do it. 
Nobody cares, nobody complains, and nobody does them, so I just do them twice a week. That's a different paradigm for me. Why do you have to do them three times a day? Nobody else is doing it. They just leave them there for me. I only have coffee cups. I do them, I wash them, I put them away, I'm done. I do it like laundry. I do dishes like I do laundry. I don't know. I don't know why I've done And that, that is way. the thing. Like some people be like, oh, that's disgusting. That's gross. Fine. I, then do your dishes no, all the time. I don't time. think it's from a sanitary issue. It, it's never occurred to me to not do it daily. Right. right. So it's that lens of how you were raised versus just, eh, this, the this only, is what works for me to live my life the way I want to yeah. live my life versus just running on old behavior, or old learned patterns that you saw from somebody that was doing it their way. And at home, you either see what you had growing up what you see on TV or what you see at your family and friends' houses when they're on their best behavior because they're having mm. you over their house. So you're comparing your everyday reality to fake television and everybody on their best behavior, and you're constantly berating <laughs> yourself. Why do you do that? Like, that's why I tell everybody that I don't even go to the grocery store and I do my dishes twice a week because I have a home organization company that's pretty successful because I want to have a successful company. I don't right. want to have my dishes perfectly clean three times a day. You can't do both. No. You can't. Putting, and uh, I think where I get guilty of stuff like that is trying to put sis- too many systems in place to take care of it. And then it's balancing uh, the Eisenhower matrix of urgent versus important. And the paradigm I like to talk about at home is the uh, pyramid, the um, Maslow's hierarchy of mm-hmm. needs. Because at home, especially for women, we stay at the very bottom of that paradigm because we're always trying to make the basic you know, your house, your safety, your physiological needs. As soon as someone gets the flu, we're back down to the bottom. It's like we're constantly paying shoots and ladders and we never get all the way to the top because the work is never done. The work is never done. But if everybody pitches in and does it all on Saturday, then we can get five or six days into the week and get a little bit higher on that pyramid before we all collectively do it again. I want to talk about the Friday box. Okay. I'm a month and a half into it. Okay. And it's... Definitely a different way of thinking across an organization. And I would encourage people, Not this is not a paid plug, I would definitely <laughs> encourage people to try it. Uh, it is an investment, but I think it's, I've already seen an extra five to seven hours a week in my life and less cognitive load than I would normally experience daily. Wow. And when I'm looking at that from what do I charge hourly, mm-hmm. it's paid for itself already. So that's really where I'm starting to think about, not just on my time scale, as my team starts to implement it, even though they're not billed hourly, they kind of are in a sense, right? When you pay for salary and pay for labor expenses, looking at that and how that's going to grow and scale. And then what's cool is that once it's implemented, the new members won't know any different. Mm -hmm. So it's just part of the normal system. Yeah, what I noticed when we create, so the Friday Workbox came from that working in direct sales and identifying those four kinds of work and helping my team members realize there are four different distinct things they were doing in their job as a direct seller if they wanted to be profitable and identifying what they were weak at so I could teach them how to do that area. What we do in the Friday Workbox, which we actually have taken those Friday Workbox podcast episodes and we put them in a separate podcast player. Mm-hmm. So if you search anywhere, you search podcasts, you can search Friday Workbox and you'll just get 13 episodes. So you'll be able to understand these different kinds of work. You don't have to have a Friday work box. You could just start to identify for yourself what are the four kinds of work that you're doing inside of your business and then how can you systematize those in a way that you can communicate what those distinct kinds of works are inside of your organization. What I've learned as a business owner is every single organization is a shit show. <laughs> yes, yeah. so yes, we are. So you heard it. There's no one. There's no one. <laughs> uh, ours included. And and when we get in there to organize, like any productivity specialist that goes in any company, they're like, okay, well, we know how to make you productive, but first we're going to have to take nine months and put all these systems in place because no organizations, not even the biggest ones that you know, they don't have good organizational systems. They just keep building new ones on on the old one on the old one. So I'm really big on paper and color coding. Because I was a kindergarten teacher and at heart, we all learn at the kindergarten level. Like you are an expert at whatever you do, but your team of experts that you have around you, when you want to come together and collaborate, do it at a kindergarten level. Like the reason a kindergarten classroom is so organized and the home of the same five-year-old child is a mess is because everything has a place in kindergarten and everything's color coded and there's a schedule and everybody knows what to do. And so if you want your company to grow beyond you as yourself or you and an assistant, 
you need to create some kind of flexible, simple enough communication system so that you're all on the same page and understanding whether something you're working on is an idea, it's pink, it's lead generating, or it's a client, it's revenue generating and it's purple is, I mean, just, just that. If you went into your business and divided every single thing you're doing and everyone on your team is doing and decide if the work is lead generating or revenue generating, your team does not know that. They do not think that way. And they think work is work and projects are projects and I put in my hours. Mm-hmm. But if they're, if you're too heavy on leads, you don't make enough money. If you're too heavy on projects, you get done with the project and you realize you don't have one lined up in the queue. And until you get that pink purple balance, there's no point in building a team. But not everybody's responsible for leads. Not everybody's responsible for project management or project fulfillment. Yes and no. So I've had four meetings today and in every meeting, there were ideas that came up in that meeting where people wanted to do more research. An idea came out of our, our customers that they wanted to follow up on. I said, that is a great idea. That's going to go in a pink slash pocket and you can do that quarter two or quarter three or sometime in the future. It's going to be a distraction right now. Mm. So you're looking at it more from how do I manage the cognitive load of all of my employees than I'm looking at it from anything else. Cognitive load, but also productivity. So, I mean, your people, even if they're going to work 50 hours a week for you, they only have 50 hours. They can't work 500. So if they spend 40 of those 50 hours researching the next book that you might be writing, but they didn't finish up the email sequence that you need for the product that you're launching in two weeks, like it's... Right, you're out of balance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel, I felt out of balance before starting it. And like I said, we're five weeks in, so it's not fully in effect yet, but I can see where the systems are starting to work. So yours was interesting in that you didn't have a lot of pink. I mean, you do have a lot of pink ideas and lead generating and all that. But what I thought your problem was you had too many purples because I limit how many purples you're allowed to have. Mm -hmm. And you were not fully handling the whole project off to your team members. You were trying to keep the purple project and have your team do it or piecemeal parts of the purple instead of just giving the whole project over to your team. Isn't that what we had talked about part of it. So the, what I keep inside of my purples are um, high level notes from meetings mm-hmm. on what, a, what do I need to do from a paid? So looking at our company and how I run a lot of it, we have somebody that helps with email and SMS for clients that are, have that as part of our service. We have the paid media, which I primarily manage. We have the business development side, which is Phil's side. And then we also have uh, Megan who helps kind of tie all that together. Mm -hmm. So even though we each have our own purple for that, my purple and their purples all look completely different. Right. And getting somebody that doesn't like to organize onto a purple system has been a little bit challenging and unique, but it's, it's interesting to see the way they think about their projects because it's not that they're not actively working on them or thinking about them. It's just from a different modality and structure in the business, they don't have to have as much as I would need to have from a data side or data analytics standpoint where I'm looking through the last two weeks or three weeks worth of data constantly to make better decisions. Same thing with email and SMS. They're writing copy. They're putting images together. They're looking at big storyboards. So, of course, they're going to have more to fill those up versus somebody who's looking at it from what are the immediate needs? How can we forecast out three, six, nine months? and then focus on systems, processes, and people to help fulfill that. So their structure of how they were thinking about it is a little bit different than where I want the hard data right in front of me at an arm's reach to be able to pull it without having to wait for 500 websites to load for me to get one answer that's already in there. Well, and I think it's a difference in businesses too. So 100%. like if you're a service business, like, so I used to clean houses. So when I would clean houses, it'd be like, okay, I need one pink slash bucket for people who might want me to clean their house and then a purple sleep slash pocket for each person I clean their house for, you know, like it was a very simple business. When I was in direct sales, it was like, okay, I have my business and then I'm teaching my downline how to run their business. And then I'm trying to go for this incentive trip, a little bit more complexity, but really I'm not deciding what we're selling. The the catalog is coming to us. The promotions are coming to us. Once you're in your own business, you own your own business and you've grown it to the point where there's enough revenue and enough interest that is beyond just you. You're not a solopreneur. I mean, the complexity is just from here. The rest of my entire career will be people, like managing people. And people think differently, which is good. Like you don't want everybody to think the way you do. Mm-hmm. 
But if you're managing different people, again, I'm going to go back to the classroom. How we have 20 people inside the company, that's 20 students in my classroom. And some are, you know, teleporting in because they're remote and some are actually there all day and somebody just left because they had to go to a special and they're going to come back. And did they get that information? Were they in that meeting? And if I want everybody in a meeting, do you know how much money that costs me to run that meeting if my entire team is there? A lot of money. So you don't want everybody in a meeting, but you want everybody to have enough information, but not too much information. And you want them to have enough work so that they're not bored or reading a book, but not too much work that they're stressed and they're working more. Like it's a constant balancing act. And it comes down to how do you get everybody on the same page? And then we have, you know, a bunch of people that are in their early 20s and we have a couple of people that are in their 60s. And those people think differently. They store their information differently. They research differently. What does that look like in that in those differences of how that happens? Uh, some people are totally pe- paper pencil like me. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm digital. I can create a website. I, I know how to find everything digitally. But when I want to process information, I am a visual and auditory learner. Mm-hmm. So when I get on a computer, I'm just like, I can't even process. I just start opening up more tabs and I just go into research mode. So I like to get all of my information. I like to look at printed out reports. I like to write notes for myself and store them in that slash pocket so that when I'm deciding to do the TV show, I literally have 12 years worth of notes and recordings from meetings I've had with different producers and things. I have it all in front of me and I'm not distracted by my phone or my computer and my mind can just dream and I write a bunch of ideas and then I go and I'll put that in a digital form to communicate it out. But when we have our meetings, we usually don't have even computers there and we're just processing through all these things verbally with our printed materials and we stay very focused on that. And then we go out and we do the work digitally that needs to be done to support that. What I've found is that people are struggling with when to throw something away. Oh yes. Yes. Right. Like when is that actually done and out of my plate? And that is a business owner problem. So we found that when we started going into companies as well, like employees would just start bringing reams of paper in these baskets. We're like, where'd this come from? And they're like, we don't know when we're allowed to get rid of anything. Like in my own company, it happened. Like when we were cleaning out our Friday work boxes, I was like, what is all this? They're like, well, we don't know when to get rid of a meeting agenda. I'm like, as soon as you get a new meeting agenda, like that, <laughs> you either did it or you didn't. Like you don't need a re- report card of it. Like just, you just keep getting rid of it. If you have not explicitly told your team when they can get rid of things, they won't get rid of anything. In email also. You don't want to know. You don't want to know until I had Megan, each one of my inboxes had like 15,000 emails that were unopened. And it wasn't because I wasn't actively going through them. I would find the two or three that I needed to see inside of there, reply to them, hold the chain. And then everything else that was in there was just junk. So email for me, I, I have two thoughts on that. One I process every single piece of email that comes in my email and I get off of all those junk lists. Mm -hmm. So I do process it all. I don't understand the whole putting it in file folder things. Like I'm just not a digital person. I need to see it. If it needs to be action, it stays in my inbox and I print it out or, or not. But the second thing is I think administrative assistants are completely underrated. It was the first hire I ever had. It is the last person I would ever give up. She schedules my calendar. She goes through all of my emails. She does everything that she can. Um, and Pat's amazing. Shout I out love to Pat. Pat. Oh my gosh, I love Pat. But I think that a lot of companies, if you are not an entrepreneur and you're working in a company, most companies are getting rid of administrative staff, like if they haven't already. I watched it happen in my husband's company. I was like, this is the dumbest move they've ever made. And then I started looking around and seeing all the other Fortune 500 companies doing the same thing. And I'm like, what? why are they doing that? Because it's the mental load of going through all the email and scheduling all that stuff that you are now doing in your daily job, which means that, first of all, it's decision fatigue. Mm -hmm. And second of all, you're not able to do what you're uniquely created to do or what you're really being paid to do because you're doing all this administrative work, which is quality work that has a system to it that administrators are really, really good at doing. Like they love doing that kind of work. So let them do it. It will save you so much time and mental bandwidth and everything will be done on time. And I just, I am all for it. Whenever anybody's like, I'm ready to build my team. I'm like, okay, so you need an administrative assistant. <laughs> like it's the first person I start with every time. That's what you need. Tim Ferriss got me hooked on that idea. And then I didn't execute on it. And I wish I would have sooner. Mm-hmm. Megan was our most recent hire. 
And I wish she would have been the first mm-hmm. because it would have made my life a lot easier. And at home, getting someone to clean your house is the equivalent. Yes. yes. I still enjoy mowing the lawn, so I keep that one. Mm-hmm. It's a pain in the ass sometimes when you're crunched on time, but it's that separation that we talked about because I was working from home for years. Yeah. It got me out of the house to do something that I deemed as productive and needed to be done. Mm-hmm. So I felt that dopamine rush of, yes, I got it done and it's crossed off the list and the lines are nice and everything's clean and put away. But when it was done, I was like, okay, like this is something I enjoy cleaning my house. Not so much. I could get rid of that in an instant. And that was one of the first things we did too, is get a, get a house cleaner. Well, that cutting the grass, doing the laundry, some of those household related tasks that you can do without even thinking anymore. Mm -hmm. Yes, it checks off the box, but also again, it's that kinesthetic, like your brain is processing through the week and you're pondering and making different associations. So I love knowing that a 14-year-old boy invented television in a field and a 14-year-old boy invented email. I just want to have a camp someday of just 14-year-old kids and just listen to everything they have to say. I want to have a camp that pairs up 14-year-old kids with um, people in their 80s. That'd be cool. Because they are of the same generation, because there are four generations. I guess it'd be 90 and 14-year-olds. But they uh, every 20 years is a generation. So the oldest generation right now, the silent generation, is the same like chemical makeup as Gen Z, because generations repeat every four years. There's a book called Generations. Okay. And I'll so they think that they see the view, they see the world the same way. So Gen Z and the silent generation, which now thinking about now is amazing. The silent generation went through World War One and World War Two and the Great Depression. Now think about Gen Z. Mm. It is coming of age and we are on the brink of war. Wow. Um, yeah. History repeats itself every 80 years. Like read pendulum, read generations. So what I'm saying is 14-year-old children are going to relate to 94-year-old people. They'll have the same worldview every 20 years. Each generation has a different worldview. What generation are you? I'm a millennial. Okay. And I'm Gen X. We don't even get a name. No one cares about us. <laughs> Do you realize we were the most populous in Gen X, was the most populous in the workforce for two years? That's it. It was baby boomers, <laughs> Gen X for two years, and now we're the millennials. So we just, just skip over them. But um, millennials make a lot of civic change. Baby boomers make a lot of um, economic corporate change. Interesting. And you could see that happening now. So the babies being born now, they will be the next uh, baby boomer generation. They'll make a Do lot you think there will be the same quantity? Um, usually the generation, like Gen X is always the smallest. I think once we totally got skipped entirely, like we never have a president. Our generation never gets a president because it goes from baby boomers. It'll jump right down to millennials. Mm. We probably won't have a Gen X president. Interesting. Yeah. Every generation has their own like thing. Our job is to make sure the millennials and baby boomers don't kill each other. (laughs) That's what Gen X is here for. Oh, that's great. Uh Uh-huh. We are slowly running out of time. Yeah, sorry. It's all right. (laughs) Where can people find you? If you had to leave like a few parting words of wisdom, what would that be? And then where can people find you? So my parting words of wisdom as a teacher is just be inquisitive. Like, I don't think you could have listened to this interview and not had a couple of like, oh, I never thought about that. Or, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. Mm -hmm. Follow those thoughts. Like, just where do those take you? I love that. Uh, my podcast is Organized 365. We've been doing that for over seven years where I talk about all these things. But if you just want to learn about the workbox, we've pulled that out into a podcast and we're going to pull our research out into a podcast in a month or two as That'd well. That'd be cool. Yeah. I'm excited to see that. Thank you for being on. Thank you. super awesome. Guys, we'll catch you later.